Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. When hundreds of local activists met in Washington, D.C. for the first National People of Color and Environmental Justice Summit in 1991, it sparked the birth of a movement. One of the flowers that bloomed was the Asian Pacific Environmental Network, APEN, which was founded in 1993 to build the leadership of Asian immigrant and refugee communities to fight for environmental justice. In Richmond, California, a city of 100,000 people on San Francisco Bay, APEN connected with a growing Laotian community that had resettled there after being displaced from their homeland by the U.S. war in Vietnam and the secret war in Laos. Community members had lived for many years in refugee camps in Thailand, the Philippines, and other Southeast Asian countries before being resettled in the U.S. Richmond quickly became a hub for Laotian refugee families, but many didn't know that there were over 350 toxic facilities in the city and that residents had high rates of asthma and cancer. Through grassroots education, organizing, and advocacy, APEN and Laotian community leaders began launching and winning campaigns for environmental justice. Today, I talk with Tom Nomprasort, who escaped Laos in 1995 and has lived in Richmond ever since. Torm is part of the heart and soul of APEN and has helped recruit and train the next generation, including Danny Kampenthong, who in his mid-twenties has already become a key organizer for justice in Richmond. Torm and Danny are taking me on a tour of Richmond, from toxic sites to farmer's markets. Before we head out, we meet in the APEN office in a strip mall in Richmond. I start by asking Torm if he remembers the early days of the movement. Five, six Asian who from the Bay Area went to the first People of Color Summit in Washington, D.C. When we talk about environmental justice, and it's nobody there in the Asian community are in the room. So APEN formed in 1993 as a non-profit. And then the first thing that APEN does is kind of like look at the community impact. And so they came down to Richmond because over 300 different chemicals in Richmond, uh, some small, some are big, some of them are storage, some of them are you know, cleanup, some of them huge operations like Chevron, General Chemical, right? And you have to understand that in Richmond to Martinez about 20 miles, we have five different uh, refineries, and some of them are just next door to each other. And then they also find out the Southeast Asian community, mostly at that time Laotian community who live in Richmond and have nothing, information or knowledge about the, how terrible it is, the pollution impact our health, impact our daily life in here, and then start to get the Laotian to understand about they have a right to stand up and speak for themselves and speak the issue that impact them and they should take that to decision making like the, the mayor, the city council and then a county supervisor to talk about how much impact on them. And like one of the first campaigns that you worked on, Tom, was around the toxicity of fish that were being caught 
and eaten in San Francisco Bay by, by the Laotian community? So the first thing we get into is the seafood consumption. Of course, there are a lot of seafood contamination around the Bay Area here. But the Laotian folk, because of the economy condition of the Laotian community, when they get home, they drop off their clothes and go fishing, right, to bring uh, food, uh, extra food for a family because they are much low-income earning, right? We will try to tell them the fish is contaminated. The, big, the bigger fish you eat, the more contaminated. <laughs> People don't believe it. They said we, are, we, are, we don't tell them the truth. The government don't want them to go fishing. The government want them to buy the fish from the store so they can, the government can collect the tax. They said if the fish contaminated, why the fish still swimming and why it's still in the ocean and we catch it? It's still alive, right, when we catch it. So they, they don't understand about the chemical into the food. And then we send the big fish eat the small fish. Our culture, we consume everything on the fish. Contestant, the head, everything, right? And the way we cook it, we wrap on the foil or cook in the pot. And then so the state advisory said, you should do filet. You should, and they said, like, you guys lie. You can, those are the best part. And then you don't want, you don't want us to eat. <laughs> oh, now, now we know that you want, don't want us to eat it. We don't want us to go catch and sell. Because the store, they don't do that. The store, they take out everything. So just for context, like Laos is a country about the size of, of Oregon. But it's incredibly diverse, right? So in Laos, we have like... 42 different dialects in Laos, even the very small country, about six, seven million people, and that you have so many diversity in terms of culture and language on so forth. So when the community took over in 1975, I had to run right away because I stay with American family, so I will be uh, very dangerous to my life and my family, so we have to cross the river to Thailand right away. And I was the first... Um, 3,000 Laotian refugees that President fought uh, to approve as a refugee in the first 3,000. I was in that group. So I arrived here on December 1st in 1975. So how, how big is the Laotian community now? In 1979, we have only nine Laotian families, include Mian, Mong, and Kamu, all of those different ethnic. But right now we have about 15,000 to 20,000 in the West Contra Costa County. So in the Vietnam War, the war kind of spread at the end to Cambodia and Laos, even though it wasn't legally. There was a lot of Agent Orange and other chemicals. And so, I mean, there's there's a lot of harm that was done to the Laotian community that led them to have to leave Laos and come to the U.S. Yeah, I mean, the most of people understand and, and call the Vietnam War. But in Laos at that time, it's called secret wars. Nobody know in the public, in, in America here, nobody know that uh, U.S. involved in the Laos War, uh, which is the Viet- same thing, Vietnam War. And so the Laos military or Laos government, they don't have any money. Every penny that they spend uh, on operation in, in terms of the government and military in Laos is paid by American, right? They're like a 50 million ton drop in that land from the sky. And even right now, uh, the Laotian people still suffering uh, from an explosive bomb right now that some the Laotians still die and, and, and injure. So it's still impact even now. During the war, I lost my own two brothers, 11 cousins in that war in Laos, in my family. So I, I two of my brothers 
my own brother that killed in that war there in joined the American military, and then my 11 cousin also killed. So like in my family, the 13 people died, mm. um, all my cousin, and then my two brothers. I was refugee, this was a seven time. So in Laos, five times, we moved different places. And then uh, the sixth time I moved to Thailand, and then the seventh time I came here. So myself, I'm refugee seven times in my whole life. <laughs> like how did you, Tom, personally, how did environmental justice become a big issue for you? Most of my colleagues in the Laotian community think I'm crazy. And only they understand about is the advocacy but also to organize the community and to tell people, come together in one room and say, here's the problem in our community. Did you guys see it? Everybody said, yes. What are we going to do? Everybody looked at each other and said, we don't know, right? And so that's when you start to talk to them about a campaign, about the issue, like exactly like, okay, we, we have 10 things. We cannot do 10 things. Let's pick up one. So we have somebody have to do research, somebody have to go out, find out the issue. Then in 1999, there was a huge fire and explosion at the Chevron's Richmond refinery um, right down the road. Here's, a, here's actually a news clip I found from 2012, um, August, when there was actually another massive explosion at the same facility. We're tracking developing news now out of Richmond, California tonight. Residents of Richmond and San Pablo are being told to shelter in place because of a fire at a Chevron refinery. You can see the flames as far away as San Francisco. So when the Chevron explosion, they don't have notification in, in the Laotian language. And then, I mean, all of us, nobody know. Uh, nobody received the, the warning from the explosion what they're supposed to. And then when we try to talk that among us uh, in the Laotian community, and we have, I, I remember Pamela and I, we had like six, over 60 house party. We could talk to them about the issue. And, and after that, we bring everybody come to the one big meeting, right? And we said, what are we going to do? So a lot of people said, how about... As the government keep us radio station in loud language, how about keep us the newspaper? And then someone said, like, can they do something about the warning system itself, like in different language? We said, we don't know. Let's go ask the county. So when we asked the county, the county asked the, the vendor who, who provide the warning system, said, oh, they can put up to 42 language, right? They said, hey, that's... That, that is the, the, the thing. And then so we come back and, then, and tell the community, and the community said, let's pursue that. So, of course, then we campaign, we ask the county supervisor to implement in their warning system in multilingual. The warning system campaign was a, is a first milestone to, to like concretely uh, tell the community that, yes, we can ask uh, the government to resolve different issues that impact our community. So tell me a little bit about the uh, APEN's Leadership Academy. It's very cool. So we train the leader all of that and then train them how to go to Sacramento lobby, how to go to city council and speak on behalf of certain issues, certain policy that we think is good for the community. A lot of time uh, the, corp- the corporation use labor and again the community like us, like, oh, they take your job away. They, they, they kill your job. We said, no, we want job and healthy. Not, not not one another, we want both. We want good job, healthy job, and healthy community. <laughs> uh, 
and they they still use that all the time and and a lot of time it works for them and a lot of time it doesn't work for them because we we know that it's not we we always support good job clean job and and healthy job healthy place to work uh, but also a healthy environment, healthy community, right? So we always stand on that foundation. I'm always pro about the community organizing, always. But at least in this country, people understand is individual of us have a power because we can vote, right? That is a power that people have. But a lot of people don't understand that. But also a lot of people understand that now they try to take away from the people. <laughs> it's so complicated because of, of the politician in this country. Are, are very complicated, and for us, immigrant refugee community just don't understand. Sometimes they, they almost, I don't want to deal with this. And we, and we can say to them, no, you cannot stop. You cannot keep up. You have to fight. <laughs> so, Denny, how did you get engaged in this fight for environmental justice? Back in 2018, uh, I was doing photojournalism during the Global Climate Action Summit mm. and the uh, People's March for Climate Jobs and Justice. In the morning, I heard Torm, along with one of our elder leaders, actually speaking on a mic. And I only heard like a few parts of the speeches, but it was, there was the key word of being from Richmond, being Kamu, and fighting against the Chevron refinery. And at 8 a.m. in San Francisco, when there's like 10,000 people around you, those are some key words where I was like, I need to gravitate towards that. Those, that's the place where I need to be. Because for me, you know, I grow up, I've grown up in Richmond. I am from the Laotian community. And it's like lived experiences that I know that I could relate to. That's when I saw Torm. And that's when I got to meet the Richmond organizing director, Megan Zapanta. I got a deep history lesson within APEN, the organizing in Richmond. And it trips me out because I was born in 1994. They've been organizing for just about as long as I've been alive or a little bit longer. Growing up in Richmond, you're kind of stuck in that cycle where it's like, you know, my parents came from the refugee experience, one tournament talked about. And for them, it's like they didn't really understand the dynamics of this country. They just understood that, you know, let's have my kid go to school, do all these things, try to survive and do whatever we need to do. Danny, do you do you remember going to like your first big APEN meeting and, and what was it like? It was interesting seeing like so many Laotian elders, people that looked just like my grandparents, people that I've known. I've went to school with their grandchildren, and it gave them a lot of hope seeing, like, a young, fresh face inside the space. Someone that came from the background, from their community, understands their lived experiences, but also can connect with their grandchildren. And I think it was during that time when I started to get more politicized, or at least, like, getting pulled into APEN, because I found it as a political home. After joining a few different meetings, Torm eventually invited me to APEN Academy, which he talked about, which was the uh, leadership development training. And that's when I got to learn about how we build power within the community. And then after I finished up with the, with the training, there was a job opening for an organizer position. What does that experience feel like growing up in Richmond? When you have parents that come from the refugee experience, or if they lost literally everything, had to run away from their own home, and then they get stuck in, you know, or they get put in a place like Richmond, which has been a community that has been like heavily impacted by corporate polluters, or just, you know, a deep disinvestment from the government and so many different things, it's really hard. I remember growing up in North Richmond, it was one of the most toughest experiences just because, you know, throughout my whole life, it was surrounded by violence, pollution. I can't remember how many times I've had, like, friends and family pass away either from gun violence or from various cancers. 
and having to go to so many different funerals, it's hard for you to try and like internalize it and make sense of it. You just kind of become angry at the world while also having this pressure put on you of saying like, you know, your parents didn't go to college. Your parents didn't have a formal education. They came to this country trying to like, you know, escape a life that they once knew. They want you to go to college, do all the right things in order to like succeed in this world of capitalism. And it becomes very difficult because there's no real roadmap. There's no one that could tell you like, okay, you have to go to school. Okay, what do I need to go to school for? You have to try and major in this. Okay, for what? So you can make money and actually like get out of poverty and like live the quote unquote American dream. And I think when you put all that pressure within a generation, it tends to break them in a horrible way. That's why you see so many children or folks that like got immersed in like the violence of it all and just given up on life. There's so many people in Richmond that are broken, but there's also a lot of individuals that are resilient trying to fight and like make do what they can. So Danny, like how, how has your vision for environmental justice been shaped by, by the incredible diversity of Richmond itself? So there was a diverse, like, Black, Latinx, and Southeast Asian community in North Richmond. And throughout that time, it was really a space for people to come together and heal. Coming from so many different backgrounds of trauma, and as you connect with those lived experiences, being displaced from your home, but then finding connections and comfort within each other. I think one of the most important things, too, is, like, our communities are very resilient. One of the things that really inspired me was seeing my grandmother actually go to the community garden within my elementary school and seeing her and, like, Folks from Honduras and all different walks of life who don't even speak the same language but communicate with each other through the soil and other ways and heal each other because we're trying to navigate this new world. And as you're working with the community, do you, do you have like a specific set of organizing principles in mind? My goal as organizers to continue bringing that hope alive because we are, we are very resilient within each other and we could all find a political home and organize and actually fight against these big polluters. I think APEN has given like such rich history of what it means to actually organize, fight, build community power, and win campaigns against giant corporations or corporate polluters that have so much money and power over the community and our, even our political system. But we the people could actually unite and fight against these individuals and bring our power back. We've gone through so much trauma and like found so much refuge and power within each other, you know? So it's like, I think my big goal and vision for that is to continue keeping that trend alive. All the work that our, my elders have been putting in since the 90s and really continue that within the younger generation. I want to empower the people to realize that if we come together, fight, organize, and really build this power, we could have all this for us. But we have to be able to support each other. Okay, so now we started the tour and... Uh just in a few blocks, we've driven past a Superfund site, a metal shredder, a closed pesticide factory, um, and we're going to stop the car right here in front of this incredible ornate Laotian temple, which is opposite, uh, uh, looks like a Laotian farmer's market. In the Laotian community, back home, probably like 90% are Buddhism, uh, mostly lowland Lao, but the tribal ethnic folk are mostly like me and among the shaman and then the Kamu and uh, still worship their ancestors. But after people came here, people in, in Laos, I think probably very few um, Catholic and very few Christian. But when people came here, people go to all kinds of religion and Laosian community, it's very interesting. 
people go to Mormon, go Jehovah Witness, go to, you know, different Christian and also Catholic. And also What's some it? some folks still um, Buddhism, right? And so they still have temple. And so some family, they, they do both. They go to church and come to temple. Um, yeah, this is the, the Hmong family from Fresno. How big a Hmong community or Laotian community is in Fresno? A lot of people, yeah. A lot of, yeah. Because they have a, a, a lot of farm. Uh, we have big farm, you know. Uh, we, we do... Uh, Maybe 50,000 people in Fresno? Yeah, should be like that uh, over a little bit, yeah. yeah. 50,000 people is a lot. Yeah, a lot, yeah. yeah. The Hmong and Laotian together around maybe 50,000 50, in Fresno, yeah. yeah. Uh. And what, like, what's the most important environmental issue to you? In the Fresno, in over there, they are shorted of water because of this year, uh, especially this year. Especially for us to do farming, we rely on the water, but we also, yeah, are short on the water. Thank you. Thank you. Cool. Where are we going next, Tom? Uh, we're gonna from here, and you can see the the Laosian grocery store because it's only one grocery store the whole city, <laughs> and everybody come there for the Laosian uh, food, right? The next one will be at the Paris School. Uh, just stop right there. Cool. So, so Denny, one of the environmental issues that people don't talk about is just the ability to live where you were born and grew up. You talked about all the pollution, and yet it's really still expensive and people are getting pushed out. Like, with your generation, are, are people able to afford to live in Richmond? The simple answer to that is no, we do not. It's crazy when you think about it, how, like, housing prices here in Richmond were about half the price back in 2012 when I graduated from high school. And for a lot of my folks that, you know, graduated from high school and did four years of college and, like, came back home, tried to find a job and do all that and, like, find, you know, another home within their own uh, community or even try to get their family out of, like, renting when they've been, like, renters for generation, it became almost impossible. I feel like a lot of outside speculation has come in and made it very expensive to live in Richmond, especially since we have, like, um, access to public transportation, the ferry, the BART system, and all that that actually gets people to jobs in San Francisco. And for a lot of people within my generation, they've had to either move out to either Pittsburgh, Antioch, Vallejo, or all those places where they can't be within community in the place where they grew up. A lot of people still have their families over here, whether it be their aunts, uncles, cousins, or grandparents, or parents. A lot of people are getting displaced from the community, but they're also traveling far just to try and get to work. So it's like, not only are you getting displaced from your own community, you are now having to travel so far just to try and find jobs that actually fit your need. And for a lot of people that are struggling, they said, you know, I've lived in Richmond my whole life. I went to college. I've done all these things. Why can't I find a job within my community that actually helps me, like, live here? Job sucks that we have here either within warehouse jobs like Blue Apron, HelloFresh, Amazon, or the refinery. 
And for a lot of people, those options just aren't viable to actually like have a living salary out here. Is that kind of a broader sense of justice and environmental justice? Because some people just think about it as pollution, but having the ability to live in a community feels like part of that important justice pursuit. Yeah, like what Torm said earlier, it's like he's experienced displacement multiple times, displacement from, you know, his homeland Laos, and also displacement from coming over here. It's like it's hard just trying to establish roots after everything that you've gone through in life. And now that we're like fighting for justice and like trying to have these big environmental wins, it's like one of those things where it's like, you know, as much as we want to continue fighting, we want to make sure that one, we actually get to benefit from these fights. Basically, what we're all fighting for the future that we're trying to build out within the just transition, ensuring that we all have the things that we need to help us feel secure, safe, and, you know, loved within our communities is here and we actually get to enjoy those things and thrive off of it. We don't want to experience displacement with gentrification. We're fighting hard just to try and build out like the future that we want to see, but we also want to make sure that we're actually here to, you know, enjoy those benefits for our children, our grandchildren, or whoever it may be, the future generations. I might not be able to see these benefits within my lifetime, but I want my children or grandchildren to be able to see it. You know what I mean? 100%, yeah. Um, Danny, where are we driving next? I want to show you some housing issue. Uh, I'll show you the affordable housing to the non-profit that then people who live here in North Richmond have opportunity to own a home. Okay, so Tom, when you think about, you're talking about the first environmental justice conference back in 92, 93, like now 2021, you've lived all these years, seeing this movement evolve and change. Like when people think about people of color, often the Asian community is left out of that discussion. In Asian community, very high uh, percentage, like 70% people care environmental issue, environmental justice. Um, that is important for us uh, because of our work, because we, we do have a majority of Asian community that support uh, the, the work we do. Uh, not only just the environment, but I think the oppression impact from the capitalism, imperialism, those era and kind of like still carry on kind of impact us right now, even environmental justice. And currently right now, even the, the right to vote, right? Most of our Asian community folk are immigrant and refugee here, especially the new one, like for us as Southeast Asian, people are not aware the impact. Each year of election cycle, we contact uh, Asian voters in California and talk to them about the voting issue, but also we follow up with them in terms of our uh, environmental justice organizing. We need to expand, we need to, to grow our power, and I mean, not just power, but I mean, to give our community the knowledge and uh, information. For me personally, I think language might not be the crucial well, my children, they speak English, they grow up here, they have, they finish college here. But if they don't have information, certain information that impact them, it doesn't mean they speak English, they can, they understand. So I think it's very crucial that the people have this, the knowledge and the information about what impact them. And then they can have a critical thinking um, decision to make. They can have that intelligent choice. I've always shared this with people. The most dangerous in the world is two things, ignorance and ego. Those are the most dangerous. 
nuclear is there, but if no, if that person doesn't have ego, doesn't have ignorant put the but it won't go out. But when people ignore the problem, is like the climate change. It's here. It's, we already have impact around the world. People still think like, oh, it's nothing. We want people to move to renewable energy. We want to move to a clean energy, and we want to get away from fossil fuel. It's not like we just don't like the folk who do fossil fuel. It's a danger for all of us. The technology is already here. The the solution is already here. We just need to acknowledge that and then said yes, it is time. Especially the government have a have a authority to make a policy. And the same thing this morning. I think we all know people who work in the government that all the fossil fuel, all the oil industry, they get check from the government. They get free check. Those money is our money. It's our tax money. We pay the tax, right? And they just get it, and then they come back and. And, and kill us and pollute us, right? And then so it's a time for us to move on. I think one thing is the community need to educate the Asian community to understand that and then join the movement and join the effort so we can pressure the government to, to change the policy and to look at alternative because we might not be survived if we don't keep ignoring. And I think that for me is very important. The, the alternative solution is here. Danny, you're a young man, you're organizing in a community, like, on an emotional level, like, when you think about climate change and your future, how does it, how does it make you feel? For me, it evokes a strong feeling of anger, like, lots and lots of anger. I think it just stems from, like, just all the things I experienced growing up in Richmond, like, all the different times where I've had to like see people suffer through cancer or even take care of loved ones that have passed away. It's like I've seen the direct effects of pollution and now I'm seeing like the global impacts. Like so many people that I've seen on the East Coast are literally dying from hurricanes, Hurricane Ida. And I remember like way back then, like folks talking about like improving the infrastructure, investing within the people, making sure that we're actually prepared for these disasters because they're here. And yet there was no kind of like incentive or like push from officials to actually improve that now you just have people suffering for no reason when they could have fixed this years and years ago or at least actually invested within the people and i think it just makes me angry because i feel like there's so many things where we could have prevented this a long time ago if there was intervention if we actually had support from government officials that didn't take the side of corporations but so many things like so much anger. I remember last year, just around this time was, I believe, Mars Day, when the sun was literally blocked out. I remember I woke up just feeling this deep sense of anger just because I literally couldn't see the sun. The sky was orange. Ash was falling from the sky. And I had the Chevron refinery, which I'm looking at right now, still flaring, polluting my community while also destroying the environment. And it, it breaks my heart because it's like one of those things where it's like we've seen the effects for so long and it's like one of those things where communities like ours have been crying out or at least fighting tooth and nail to try and win these policies and make these things happen but now that it's like the whole state of california was on fire and like the whole west coast was engulfed and smoked it's like okay now you guys are gonna do something now you guys are gonna listen because it's already too late and I feel like it's something that we should have done yesterday. It's like, I should like invest in the people that are fighting in these EJ communities like Richmond, all these other places, and actually invest within their power to take control against these corporations and actually have the support of our government officials to actually say like, you know, enough is enough. You can't just keep polluting our communities. You can't keep trying to like win these legal battles against us or at least like keep poisoning us when you're literally destroying the world. 
imagine how much money that we have to spend just to try and like you know improve all the infrastructure all the damage that's been caused by climate disasters i don't even know the exact number amount between all the hurricanes wildfires and things that we've gone through and it's just an astronomical amount where i'm like it could have been prevented if we just like actually invested within like the people of these communities instead of relying on polluting corporations so after a, a really uplifting and sometimes difficult day seeing super fun sites metal shredders uh, refineries uh, we're now ending the day at something pretty hopeful, Denny. Tell, tell us about where we're at. Uh, right now we're at Rise Commons, which APEN and Rise have been working together in joint to figure out how we could turn the Rise Youth Center into a climate resilience hub. So it's an amazingly modern building. It's, it's like three floors, four floors, and it's, it looks like it was just built. They're now just wrapping up construction on it right now. So yeah, the Rise Youth Center has been around in Richmond since I believe the, the mid 2000s. And with the main focus of uplifting and empowering youth voices and like healing the community that has been heavily disinvested in by so many different systems. So many youth, including myself, have been affected by the uh, school to prison pipeline. And for a lot of us, it's like we never really felt loved, cared for, or even like supported by the system that we lived under. So for many youth, it's like you grow up in a rough environment and the Rives Youth Center was a place for them to actually have a voice, explore different arts and actually heal themselves in so many ways. And the new Rise Commons building is is focused on, on being like a, a sanctuary for climate emergencies and, and also like every day for a model of climate resilience. Back in 2019, the Rise Youth, uh, a lot of them were pretty much helping develop out the new building and figure out like what services they'll want, how would they like it to look. Catherine Lee, my youth organizer, has been working with our APEN youth interns over the past year, surveying close to 120 to 140 uh, high school students and figure out what they will want to need in case of a climate disaster and emergency. And throughout that process, they're able to figure out, okay, you know, kids right now are literally living through a pandemic They've seen the worst wildfires that you could ever experience. And I believe about every other month you get a little earthquake because we're in California. And for a lot of them, it's like they either had a good idea of what they needed or at least I want to pose that question of like, you know, what do we really need in these kind of situations? What did you hear from that survey? I think a lot of them were thinking about first aid kits, being able to stay connected with like loved ones and families through technology and electricity because we rely so heavily on that and just having like a place for them to feel safe in those uh, spaces. And the one thing that we've been really working hard on is trying to figure out what is the correct solar and battery storage for these type of things. Because I think it's very hard when you uh, talk about a climate resilience hub or climate resilient communities, you know what I mean? Or this idea that I know that California just passed a budget for it. I think there's like a hundred million being advocated towards uh, climate resilience hubs. And I believe this is the prime example of uh, a building, a space that has been serving Richmond youth for years and years and like creating climate resilient communities in so many ways. But also now with this partnership, it's like we can figure out, okay, we can empower youth. We can give them a safe place in case of a climate disaster and emergency. And we continue empowering the communities here. And so one of the ways to do that, right, is to listen to youth. I feel like between the school system and everything that they've gone through in life, it's like held them down or told them that their voice doesn't matter. But in this organizing space, they're able to reclaim that power in so many ways. And what they've been able to achieve now is like figure out how can we make sure that this space is actually held and sustainable in those emergencies. 
At the end of the day, it feels, this feels like a sign of hope. This feels like a pretty hopeful building. It is very hopeful because the youth are the future. And this is a solid example of how we come together and actually like, you know, hold ourselves in beautiful ways and support each other. And I think that is made possible by, of course, community organizing, engagement, and also just like, you know, being able to uplift and hold one another. And I think that now that um, we've been talking about climate resilience up at the statewide level, I think like this is one of the main blueprints that everyone should go off of. Because the Climate Resilience Hub should not be something that's run by corporations. We've already talked about how much that's already affected our communities in horrible ways when corporations take over or try to speak for the people. Listen to the people, listen to the community that you're trying to serve and actually build infrastructure around their needs. A Climate Resilience Hub should not be one that a corporation implements onto the people. It should be one that's led by the people and the people that you're trying to support. This youth center is centered around youth voices and youth empowerment. So, of course, who are you gonna speak to? The youth. A huge thank you to Tom Nomplasot and Danny Kampathong for talking with Podship Earth today and for showing me so much of Richmond. Before Tom managed to escape from Laos to the US, he had lost 13 members of his family. The US had dropped 50 million tons of bombs on Laos, defoliated the forest with Agent Orange, and he'd been displaced six times. Tom then finds that Richmond, California, the place he sought to pursue the American dream, is an epicenter of environmental injustice with more than 350 toxic hotspots. The story of Tom and the creation of the Asian Pacific Environmental Network is so inspiring because it's about a vision for the community that comes from the community. It meets people where they're at and then uses grassroots organizing tools to help empower everyday people but it also shows how uneven the battle for environmental justice really is. Communities win some important victories, but the system is firmly stacked against them. But it also shows how uneven the battle for environmental justice really is. Communities win some important victories, but the system is firmly stacked against them. The only way forward is to firmly put people and the environment first. Denny's articulation of the hollowness of the success pathways that were dangled in front of his generation was incredibly powerful. The anger and frustration and not being able to live in the community in which you were raised requires putting housing equity squarely at the forefront of the environmental justice agenda. As Denny said, it's hard to work day and night to clean up Richmond, only then to be displaced. We need to understand and own the trauma that is doubly compounded by the experiences of refugee communities. The Rise Common Project in Richmond is a place of healing and a sanctuary against the impacts of climate change. The incredible new centre was born from the aspirations of youth and offers a beacon for tomorrow. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, the future requires that we organize today. Today.